tell the American people the truth. The American people, I think, actually have a pretty high tolerance for hard truths. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with me is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. This is different for us. It's just going to be the three of us and uh, no outside guests, so we can speak more candidly. We can say what we really think. We can say what we really think, exactly, (laughs) not be intimidated by them. Um, I thought I would start with January 20th, 2017. Uh, nobody that heard birthday, that. David? Is that. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody heard Corey's stomach rumble. We just stopped. We just stopped <laughs> speaking because Corey's stomach rumbled in a really book, disturbing. Move along, folks. Move along. <laughs> you know, we, we are here in the FP studio. We are all eating leftover Halloween candy, so yeah. we're gonna we're gonna share the remaining two milk duds between the three of us. Right. Although this podcast could have been recorded at any time in Halloween. <laughs> Good recovery. <laughs> you know. Right. No. 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 The, the Halloween leftovers last for about four months. Yeah. That's morally yeah. wrong. Halloween leftover candy should be sight through like wildfire. This is the kind of division, the kind of intellectual discourse that this <laughs> podcast depends on. No, January 20th, 2017 is the day the next president will take office. Hey, Corey, were you the next president? What would you do to reboot U.S. foreign policy? What are the three most important things the next president of the United States needs to do on the foreign policy front? first hundred days kind of thing. The first thing is stop saying things we don't mean as a way to begin restoring American credibility. Can you give us an example? Uh, President Obama at the United Nations General Assembly, in speaking about Syria, says, as everyone knows, America will always do its part. Oh, right. Um, you think we should instead say, as everyone knows, America will sometimes do its part, <laughs> and at other times we will shirk, I say to you now. Oh, this is what I like. We're the suggesting sh- that very clearly. The, the he Shockey doesn't even Brooks need to administration say. will be the first one in history <laughs> to speak be- the truth on foreign policy. There um, you go. I am opposed to speaking the complete truth on foreign policy, but we actually— Israel, we- you are our best— no, you, we like you. Sometimes. Actually, we don't like you that much. We have to deal with you, and we will do so reluctantly unless it's election season. I'm very grateful for this stalling to buy me time to think of two more things. The first, though, is we need to restore our credibility. It's um, We are saying so many things that we don't actually mean. Uh, and we ought to just stop doing that. The second thing I would love to see, uh, the Brooks presidency, in which I am proud to serve as her vice president, um, Wait a accomplish. Minute. That's not fair. I don't want to be president. <laughs> uh, is that uh, the president working with Congress and making a public case for policies matters an enormous amount. And it's shocking to me that President Obama has done that so little and so infrequently on the wars we're fighting and on the major national security issues. So we do need to have a conversation with American voters 
about what we need to do in the world. So when Hillary Clinton is elected, where are we going to take all the recalcitrant, difficult Republican Congress people to get them out of the way? We're going to send them to Syria to fight ISIS. (laughs) (laughs) Which they want to do. Possibly the Syria. I remember (laughs) in the halcyon days of American foreign policy that were uh, Jesse Helms chairing the Senate (laughs) Foreign Relations Committee, that Madeleine Albright managed to build a lot of common ground with him on policies that need doing. In fact, there's that one awful picture of the two of them. But do you know what you're saying, right? (laughs) You're saying we've come to the point where Jesse Helms, in retrospect, looks like a beacon of reasonability. Yes! You know and what? Madeleine Albright looks like a fantastic Secretary of State. One of my very first uh, foreign policy assignments when I was a young person working at the U.S. Department of State during the late days of the Clinton administration was to babysit Jesse Helms's staffers uh, while at the United Nations. Uh, and my I thought job, you were going to say some of his illegitimate no, children. No, 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 no. Mark Thiessen, who now writes for the Washington Post and was then working for Jesse Helms. And, and my job was to uh, keep them out of trouble, which is to say to keep them from having their own personal bilateral meetings with foreign leaders by saying things like, oh, the meeting with the Iranian head of state, oh, I don't think that's until three o'clock, when it was really at two o'clock and things, other devious things. You did that? I never told a lie because I'm a very honest person, but but that was clearly my assignment was to uh, do what it took to keep Jesse Helms away from the United Nations. However, I take your point, Corey. I feel like we can't... Uh, a lot of the policy constraints on the president are actually of our own making for either saying things we don't mean or refusing to build a basis of domestic support for what they think need doing. Jim Madison and I run a project at the Hoover Institution on civil military gaps, for which I think I have previously mentioned Rosa wrote a terrific chapter for the book. One of the things that is most striking about American public attitudes on national security issues is how malleable they are to the president making the argument that Meaning we need they to don't really know what they think. Yes, they're not Ted Cruz principled, I'll burn this place down rather than compromise to create common policy. Like people understand that the world's dangerous and complicated and they expect the president to make sense of it for them and explain to them that what needs doing we can do and we're not gonna pay a disproportionately high price so, to do it. Item number one, walk the walk. Yeah. Item number two, hands across the aisle. Item number three. Uh, item number have to be three. It's <laughs> getting harder each, each podcast. Gets a little item tougher. number three is build non-military tools of American foreign policy. We have allowed too much stuff to migrate into the Defense Department that is properly civilian uh, activity, and it migrates into the Defense Department because. Uh, because they know how to get stuff done. And we need to actually build stronger levers. The Treasury Department's done a great job on building sanctions levers, but there are a lot of other levers, and we need to get busy. So here we have what I didn't expect we'd have. We have Corey recommending that we downsize the Pentagon and move those things out and have them done someplace (laughs) else in the government. I'm in favor of that. Uh, Rosa? Okay. Well, I'm going to agree with much of what Corey just said, but but disagree with a little bit. And let me start with the disagreement. I don't know what it means to say that certain things ought to be military tasks and certain other things ought to be civilian tasks. You know, these these are these are categories that we created 
uh, we can change them. Um, you know, God didn't come down and say, here is a box labeled military that shall only be touched by people wearing uniforms. Here is another box labeled civilians that shall not be touched by those in uniforms. And I think we That's really— That's not actually what Mike Huckabee says. <laughs> well, I, th- I think we really fetishize the, the idea that there is a proper civilian lane and a proper military lane. And I think that that might have made a certain amount of sense back in the days when it was easy to say— this is a war, this is not a war, this is a weapon, this is not a, you know, when, when weapons were cannons and bows and arrows, you know, and wars involved massed armies uh, facing each other on an open field, it was relatively easy to distinguish between a civilian task and military task. Today, when, quote unquote, weapons are as likely to be uh, in cyberspace um, or biological in nature or financial uh, and so forth, it's not all that obvious to me that we we really have any theory anymore that makes any sense that's not just arbitrary about what belongs in the military domain and what belongs in the civilian domain. I would actually rather see us get less fixated on it. So, so, so on the one hand, I, I, I think it's true that the a lot has migrated to the Defense Department and away from the civilian agencies. I don't think the solution to that, though, is necessarily to say, oh, my goodness, we need to migrate it right back again while also building up capacity in the civilian agencies. You know, I think maybe the way to think about it is much more functional to say, what do we need to get done? Which entities can do it? If the answer is nobody's doing it well, what do we need to do? What's, where will it be least expensive financially and in terms of political costs, which is the different ball of wax, to to make sure that we develop those capabilities? So I'm, I'm less concerned about where we put them than that we can do them. But this is a critique of the Shockey administration foreign policy. However, but what is the Brooks administration? Moreover, but, 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 I reject the description <laughs> of my position as fetishizing militarization. But go but on. But fetishizing is a good word, and I, I had to use it. Um, you are fetishizing language. That's true. Okay. Um, but, but actually, be, be, and, and maybe we should come back to that whole question, but, but before we do, just uh, since my administration is still in its infancy, um, <laughs> I just want to announce my other first, my mother, my other early initiatives. Um, I think, uh, and this is, this, this, on this one, this is the, the Rosa Corollary, or Corollary, I never knew how to pronounce corollary that. Is corollary, thank yeah. you. The British say Corollary, which I can't really yeah, say. Yeah, the British say aluminium. Yeah, okay, an advertisement. <laughs> um, the Rosa Brooks Corollary to the Shockey Doctrine uh, of, of walk the walk, say what you mean, uh, is my corollary to that would be uh, tell, tell the American people the truth, you know. And the American people, I think, actually have a pretty high tolerance for hard truths, in part because they're living it. Things like, look, folks, America's ability to control the world has been declining. You say that and you're a politician right now, you get beat up, you get called a declinist, which is a very mean word to be called in American politics. I think that's absurd, given that poll after poll tells the American people understand very clearly that America's global influence is limited and has declined. And hearing hey, here's the situation we're in, here's what we're going to do about it, is going to be a lot more useful to people than hearing a bunch of pablum about we're so great, we're so great, we're so great, our military's so great, we're all so great. So, so telling the, the truth, including about the limits of American power, uh, both right now and inherently, I think is a, is, a, is a pretty vital one. I also think, and this, this will maybe bring us back to the question of what's civilian, what's military, where should we draw these lines, um, and this is this is also a corollary to the the Shockey point two Shockey administration platform two about uh, working with Congress. 
Congress is part of the problem in American foreign policy, the way Congress, not, not only all the usual stuff about partisanship and brokenness, but also just the, the structure of Congress itself that we have rather rigidly, as you know, divided uh, up responsibility for foreign affairs within Congress between Armed Services Committee, Intelligence Committees, uh, foreign affairs committees, and they don't like each other, and they don't want to play nicely together, and they don't even like having hearings together, because that would mean that somebody who's the chair of one committee can't get be in charge and be on TV quite as much in a joint hearing. That's absurd. You know, I think that I think that in in our in our amazing new administration, uh, in addition to just working with Congress, that part of the agenda of what are we doing with Congress is to say, you know, you guys need to figure out a way to tie yourselves to the mast so that we are not. America is not perpetually hobbled by this absolutely archaic and dysfunctional system of figuring out what legislation we need, what money we need, where. I got to tell you something. I'd be sitting here over at Foreign Policy <laughs> as your administration took office planning my first column, going, you know, never let wonks take over the, 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 the running people. of the government. Yeah, first flaming yeah, arrow. Yeah, right. and, and, and it would be it would be something along the lines of the first three initiatives of the Shockey Brooks administration. No, I'm all for it. I think it's you know high time we go from no women presidents to two at once. But the we could have a triumvirate the, if yeah, Dallas did. Yeah, no, no, Works but for Rome. but what not what so I was well. getting at, no, it didn't work so well. What I, what I was getting at was. That, um, you know, we've now talked about the character and the process, but we actually haven't talked about any foreign policies, like things that we would do. And this administration, if it sits here doing this, will sink into a— Oh, he's so nitpicky. He wants details. You want you want to know things like countries and issues? Is that what you're getting Yeah, where are we going to start? What are we going to do? Is there going to be a priority? Does America have a role in the world? Do we just wait for the fire alarm to go off and then we put our coats over our head and sit under our desks to make sure that— you know, um, the uh, flying glass doesn't get us. You know, I, aren't there some things that a new president's got to do, like go on an apology tour of the Middle East and say, <laughs> hey, you know, sorry about that Obama era. But, you know, those of you who are our friends, you're still our friends and we're going to do stuff with you to protect you. And those of you who are enemies, um, we're not going to invade your country necessarily, but if we can help kill you, we will do that. And here's how we're going to do it. Or go to Vladimir Putin and say, no, you know, and roll up a newspaper and hit him across the snout and say, no, you know, and, and make sure that he believes that you actually say no or say, hey, the Atlantic Alliance is really important in counterbalancing Putin and dealing with refugees and dealing with China and it's broken. We got to fix that. That's item number one. We don't have a Pacific architecture. We need to have one. That's item number two, um, et cetera. Like something. So I have to say, um, with apologies to the sisterhood, I am neither voting for myself nor Rosa Brooks. I'm voting for David Rothkopf. <laughs> Just the words because, I wanted because, to hear. Because you are completely on top my, of this, David. I am now launching my <laughs> and candidacy. And that sounded like a really good platform. It was, uh, thank you. Particularly the snout part with Putin. But, yeah, yeah, no, anything. There's right. too little use of these whack a snout with a newspaper approach. I just, yeah, there's also too little use of mano a mano or womano a womano. I don't know what the terminology would be. <laughs> Confrontation out there. But, you know, for example, John Kerry plays hockey. Vladimir Putin plays hockey. How about a little one-on-one? -on -one? 
Allow right, me. You know, let's resolve because, this. Because we know because, who would win. Yes, that's exactly that. right. That this would is be like the that end moment of in the power. Iliad when, when Hector offers to fight any of the Greek heroes to end the war, and Odysseus says, not so fast, we want Paris. He started this. Right? Like, this isn't going to end well for us. I um, have been waiting for a long time for the Iliad to work its way into our conversation <laughs> here. Um <laughs> And I'm, we, are, we are really elevating this. You after. could not have told me I'm boring in any more direct a no, fashion. No, David no, no, no. You, you are wrong. I love the Iliad. It is blood and gore and guts and violence. Um, it is no. It's a heck of a tale, right up until the point that you make Brad Pitt the star. At that point, it just all unravels terribly. Apparently, Homer's not responsible for that choice. No, that was a terrible choice. Um, are there any other concrete things that you would do? Are there any other, you know, um, reach out, new relationship with China, transatlantic trade deal? So if we're actually required to put policies and priorities <laughs> on the table, David, as opposed to— Well, and Barack Obama wasn't, so I don't see why you should be held to a higher standard. But I feel like the opportunity, the biggest opportunity in foreign policy we are currently missing— is closer work with Canada and Mexico. Integration of North American energy. What she North said, American. this is smart. I feel mm-hmm. like that's a huge one that has lots of upside um, room. But Particularly also, if we hand over control of the U.S. to the Canadians. I am not living in, in a Canada. government run by Jason Trudeau. I'm just not. My daughter, who writes for Jezebel, wrote their take on the, the election of Justin Trudeau. And it's the headline was, Canada elects a prime minister named Justin, um, <laughs> which I thought said it all. She also then, in her opening line of her thoughtful political analysis, said that he was uncontroversially fuckable. Hmm. <laughs> I was going to say something it, using slightly different it, words and like, say it's nice to see a hunky prime minister, but, but, but I think but your think daughter— of, think of Are you allowed America? to say that, by the way, in a podcast— Fuckable? A family podcast. No, I don't think you could say fuckable. Allow me to uh, suggest that John Kerry would probably win the hockey match with Justin Trudeau. So I disagree with both your daughter and Rosa. So this this would be interesting. Maybe we should do the equivalent of fantasy football. John Kerry is hotter than Justin Trudeau. That's what it sounds like you're saying. Talk about the Red Queen's race. (laughs) (laughs) This is is genius. There should be a sort of a fantasy football for foreign policy equivalent. We are thinking. No, I so don't want to do this because then. They will do the female counterpart right, as know, well. Which true. is what? Foreign policy dollhouses? <laughs> <laughs> glass houses. Foreign policy glass houses, which, which are what we so, live in. So back to Canada and Mexico, <laughs> my friends. I'm but very, you're right. It's a good point. I think not we can concentrate only, on our own continent or there, hemisphere or whatever. Not only is there a lot of upside that we are failing to take the opportunity of, but there's also a lot of downside and the losing of control over the southern border of our country and the the way that gangs and drug cartels are taking advantage of American gun laws and and Mexican so drug So a big foreign runs. policy step forward would be legalizing drugs? Um, and prohibiting guns? And prohibiting that, guns? The Republican platform, I 2016. Am, I got to say. <laughs> you heard it here first, <laughs> you want to fix. You want to make America more secure, <laughs> legalize drugs, and eliminate guns. Yes. There is nothing you could do in foreign policy 
that would save more American lives than those two states. Except possibly reduce the speed limit to 20 miles an hour. I've got an even better idea. Why don't we actually reduce the demand for drugs? How are we going to do that? By making life happier? By having everybody get along? People have been trying to reduce the demand for drugs forever. What happens is if you make them legal, then you can regulate them, and you can provide treatment, and you don't have jails that are filled okay, with so we're, the majority. Let's not get distracted by legalization of drugs arguments, though, because I, I don't want let, to... Let's, let's, let's stick with Corey's really good idea, because... Which one was that? The, focusing Some more on... Carrie versus Justin Trudeau. On this particular <laughs> hemisphere. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it is interesting. Part of the whole foreign policy puzzle, right, is, is, is what is it that we define as a foreign policy problem or crisis. Um, and and for the last uh, 15 years, understandably, given the shock of 9-11, we have defined terrorism essentially as our biggest problem, the biggest national security problem facing the United States. If you look at deaths, including deaths in the United States, deaths, deaths of American citizens, uh, and you look at, at sort of longer-term threats, things like cartel-related violence in Mexico probably is a lot more serious as a threat. And we give it about 0.001 percent of our attention right now. In addition to the threats, we obviously right, have a lot we, of opportunities. But we, every time we've gone after fighting drug threats from outside the United States, we have failed because we haven't done anything about demand in the United States. We provide the money. I'm with your legalization. We provide the guns. You can't get rid of the cartels without solving the demand problem in the United States. I think on this we are agreed. So we're making progress here. Foreign policy begins at home. Strengthen the U.S. economy. Get rid of drug laws. I'm just going to filibuster through banning <laughs> private owner, ownership of weapons, period. Um, but uh, My silence does fast. not equal <laughs> no, I, I No, I understand. Americans love guns, and it really sets us apart from the world. You know, on an economic policy point of view, those are our two biggest trading partners, Canada and Mexico. If we focused all of our efforts on improving our trading relationships and removing barriers between Canada and Mexico, we will produce more immediate benefit than TPP and TTIP added up together. And it's just not glamorous, so people don't want to go and do it. But it's definitely a place to work. Dealing with the border issues is the only way that we can be secure. And if we had functioning borders, there are other things that also could come from that. We could share our resources better. Um, not just energy resources, but human resources. You know, the United States has an aging population, and we have a problem paying for health care. We allowed Social Security to be portable, Medicare to be portable, so that if you needed to go and be in a rehab center, you could be in a rehab center in Guadalajara where you could get the care for much less. You would stimulate the Mexican economy. You would take a burden off the U.S. economy. There are all sorts of things that we could do if we put our heads to it. I agree. I agree. I agree. So we start with North America would be really novel. By the way, I had breakfast once with several times, but in this particular instance with Cam Carey, John Carey's brother. It was right before Carey was starting as Secretary of State. And he said, where should Carey go on his, where should my brother go on his first trip? And I made the case for Mexico. I, you know, I think we have to start with business at home. I think that's a big deal. What else? What what else, what well, is Hillary Clinton going to be? You know, she'll be sitting yeah. there looking at her cabinet. Secretary of Defense Flournoy will be on one side of her. Secretary of State. Burns. Here's another piece that de depends crucially on congressional cooperation: um, is radically revitalizing uh, economic, cultural, scientific, and economic exchanges of varying sorts globally. You know, during the Cold War. 
the U.S. invested quite significantly both in the uh, sort of longer-term educational infrastructure to support our foreign policy priorities at the time, screwed up as they may have been, e.g. area studies uh, and linguistic studies at, at American colleges and so forth. We also invested very heavily in the old U.S. information agency uh, and USAID, recognizing development as a, as a far tool for achieving foreign policy ends. And we have really scaled back those programs since then. But I think, you know, part of the challenge and part of the reason, in addition to just cravenness, that we're resisting your call, David, to be really specific is that we have no idea even one, you know, 18 months from now, which countries, which issues are going to be the hot ones. But what we do know is that we don't know. And we do. And that ha that actually has some implications of its own. But, you know, but we also, not knowing means that you invest across the board but, in but, creating but, the linkages and getting the... But, but we also know other things you said. You said well, our influence is diminished. You said there are mm -hmm. going to be a lot of threats. You, you know, you, you described the landscape pretty well. And, and what that means is that we need to prepare for that. And in order to prepare for a world where we can't do it all ourselves, we need to identify who's going to do it with us. And we need to identify what the modalities for working with them are. Even and doing that, though, even doing no. that means investing in those interpersonal relationships at every different level and investing in those I, I, linguistic I, I, I and agree, cultural although, expertise. Otherwise, we do it badly and we pick the wrong partners, I, which we've done from time to time. I agree. I think those are important things to do. But, I, you know, one of the reasons that I would put revitalizing the transatlantic relationship relationship and f coming up with a new Pacific architecture right at the top of the list is that's the way that we find the diplomatic mechanisms, uh, the military cooperation that allows us to burden share our way into solutions as opposed to unilaterally arriving at those solutions and creates mechanisms that promote dialogue and it enhances our leverage in certain kinds of discussions that are likely to come up by bringing many people to the table instead of just one. And on top of that, long time ago, we said we're going to work within the international system, and we haven't done a very good job of it. And if we start walking the walk as well as talking the talk, then we're going to end up with more respect and an easier time in dealing with those things. So I think those things go at the top of the list, just like I think dealing with North America has got to go to the top of the list. I also think going and repairing broken relationships because there has been a lot of trust lost during this administration, just by the way, as there was during the one before it, you know, it is, is an important part uh, of what we've got to do. I think something else is going to happen in the first 100 days. And that other thing that's going to happen is that somebody is going to challenge the new administration. They are going to test them and say, is this the Obama administration? Is this the Bush administration? Is this some other analog or is this something entirely new? And this administration is going to have to know how it's going to respond. It's going to have to say, you know, we need to send a stronger message, be more decisive, whatever it is that they want to say. They're going to have, because the test will come. And, you know, the, ironically, of course, the person who noted this in 2008 was Joe Biden, who said that Obama was going to be tested. Of course, he later went on to you know, live through all of those tests. And they continue to this day. I mean, testing Obama's limits is the game plan of some of the biggest uh, and most important rivals we face in the world. Is there likely to be a major discernible difference between a new Republican president in 2017 and a new Democratic president in 2017? Or as is usually the case, is the foreign policy going to be pretty much the same? My guess is that the foreign policy will be pretty much the same. 
for a couple of reasons. First, um, the structural factors that constrain the range of choice, our national debt, the ability of Congress and the president to get on the same sheet of music about anything, those structural factors typically argue for more continuity than we pretend actually exists. Second of all, Hillary Clinton as the presumptive Democratic nominee doesn't sound that much different from the top eight or ten Republicans in the On certain issues, although... On, on many foreign policy issues, right? Although she, has, uh, we, 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 she keeps saying that she is a continuation of the Obama administration, but she is for airstrike. She's for uh, creating a safe zone in Syria. She's for a lot of things well, that she's, are actually she's, more Right. That's pure fig leaf. The reality is she wouldn't be much like the Obama administration in some key respects. And you pick that up when she went and she did her testimony in front of the Benghazi committee. And you go and you read the paragraph in that thing, and it just says, we have discovered what happens when America refuses to step in and lead. Opportunists come in and take advantage of the situation. It was an absolute broadside at Obama inertia. Obama-ertia. Um, yes, I I agree. And she was genuinely brilliant. She cultivated the exact right air of weary acceptance of her fate in front of I don't of think the, that was a cultivated air. I think she was wearily acceptant of her fate. I, you know, I, and, she, and also a complete master of the issues. Yes. And you get these nitwits from the Congress who are sitting there making up cases, pounding the table, doing it all emotional. That said— And she was able to respond to everything. I agree with that. And yet she has a credibility problem because, for me, the big Libya question is actually— where was the phase four? Where was the plan for what happens in Libya once you do this? And well, I'm not 100 percent sure that that's her responsibility. I think the president didn't want to do something. He got pressured by some members of his team to do something, but he did it in an Obama way. He said, OK, good. Good luck to you. And he limited it. And what happened in limiting it was he ensured its failure, thus enabling him to go and say, see, you should never do that again. I, I, you know, I, I can't. I don't think that's her credibility. And, and by the way, she has to run against somebody. Right. <laughs> and, you know, we can go through the seven dwarfs who are sort of, you know, out there for her to run against. But, you know, there is not one of them who has any credibility on these issues, not not a single one. I mean, Kasich is pretty good on domestic economic issues. In fact, I think he, he may be the class of the field in terms of that. But Trump is incredible. Carson's not credible. Cruz is out of his mind. Credible vis-a-vis -vis whom? The rest of the world or American? the American population? No. More you. important, me. <laughs> credible in my eyes. Because, you know, uh, Rubio was there four years. Rubio is an Obama clone. Uh, Jeb Bush is increasingly look like he needs, you know, a Geritol or something to restore a little bit of bounce in his step. Um, he's semi-coherent on these issues, but actually... Not as coherent. He's less prepared than I would have thought he was going to be on these things. The rest of these characters don't even, you know, Bobby Jindal and, you know, Mike Huckabee and Rand Paul and, and you know, they don't even exist, right? They're not even really in the mix. Right now, it's Carson, Trump, Rubio, Bush, Kasich. Maybe you could throw in Cruz into that. Take them all together, put them in a blender, add a bunch of foreign policy fortifier, and you'll <laughs> still have a Republican foreign policy milkshake that is nowhere nearly as potent as what Hillary Clinton can deliver.
I just can't get past the put them all in a blender part. <laughs> I don't know if it makes any difference, though, David. I, I, oh, I don't I, know I, that it makes any I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that delusional. Well, but You but, just said it makes a difference. You said none of them will be as good as Hillary Clinton. No, I, I, I don't think they will be. But I'm saying, oh, I thought you meant to the American people. Uh, I, no, I actually mean to how a next administration responds to the first test that comes along, whatever that test may be. And I think that especially early and especially if it's not Hillary Clinton. You know, I think Hillary is going to feel pretty strongly that she can make her own decisions. She can take advice, but she can make her own decisions. She's been Secretary of State. She's been a senator, et cetera. Uh, I think I think any of the Republicans who ends up, if, if one of them ends up in the White House, if there is an early test, they're going to look to their team. You know, so it doesn't really make that much difference. Their experience or lack thereof, it probably is going to depend who's on the, who's in that inner circle. And they certainly can assemble some experienced people. But it is probably correct to say that whether it's Hillary Clinton or one of the Republicans, they will both, as Corey said, face the same structural constraints responding to an early test and face the feeling within those constraints of thinking we have to respond in a fairly tough manner because otherwise we're going to set right. the tone for the so next So here's the years. message. How, however, if you're what, a world leader listening to this podcast— Go act fast. Don't it, yeah. act before the new administration <laughs> takes place, because whoever that moves is first is going to get smacked harder than they would have been, and probably harder than they might otherwise. Be. But I just, think that's but right. just, just I to right. emphasize one thing, though, the fact that I think that both a Democratic or a Republican administration, if faced with an early test, that there aren't going to be a lot of partisan differences in the response. There can't be for political reasons, for structural reasons. That doesn't mean that the next four years wouldn't be different under a Democrat and under a Republican. I, th I think that the, you know, the first test, whatever it is, will, they'll have to respond in a very reactive way, almost by definition, obviously. And that doesn't mean that we wouldn't, over the next four years, on a range of different issues, see substantial differences between the two parties uh, in, in how they like, steer us on well on, on issues such as restoring the Atlantic architecture. And what does that mean? Everybody is going to say nice things about Europe. Everybody's going to say, Europe, we love you. You're our friend. You are our natural friend. Um, I suspect that a De Hillary Clinton, the presumptive Democratic nominee, is likely to invest more actual energy, diplomatic time and resources into rebuilding some of the underlying institutions that are part of that relationship than certainly some of the Republicans would do over several years. Jeb Bush probably would do this. Jeb Bush might. Jeb Bush might. Uh, Donald Trump, I'm not so Donald, Donald Trump, maybe Trump. not. You know, seriously, <laughs> folks, anyone out there, come to collect your one-ounce piece of U.S. gold bullion at foreign policy in the event that Donald Trump is elected president <laughs> of the United States. Okay, this just isn't if going to If he's not, are you going to gonna share that bullion between, between the three of us? No, it doesn't exist. No. It's, a, it's, you know, it's one of those bold, empty <laughs> statements. But the, the reality is the, he can't be elected. He can't, you know, he, he right now, he's been out there for like six months, pounding his chest, flopping his orange hair around, <laughs> You know, talking is ridiculous, huge, and, you know, I'd be the most militaristic president that we ever had. You know, that's a good thing. How do you think I look? All this kind of idiocy <laughs> is not going to carry forward right now, even in the Republican Party, a party that is willing to vote for some real nut jobs. And we'll get to Ben Carson in a second. When they look at Donald Trump, they go, 
67% of them or 70%, they say, no way. You know, he's leading with a fraction of a fraction. And so essentially, if you do the math, and he is 20% of the Republican Party, that's one-tenth of the U.S. electorate. It's just nothing. Meanwhile, Ben Carson, who looks like a guy who's on Thorazy, you know, I mean, he, you know, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm Ben Carson. I'm, and everybody's like, oh, he's a very nice guy. He's very soft-spoken. He's not soft-spoken. He nearly killed somebody. He's obviously got a wildly bad temper. He went to a shrink. The shrink said, take these pills, you know, and you can't handle another outburst like your last outburst. And so he's going around and he's very moderate. When he gets home, he kicks his cat. The guy, he's not, you know, he's just, he's cracked. The, none of the, this is like crazy season. None of these guys are going to be president of the United States. I do think um, people are are pushing aside the boredom of a potential Bush v. Clinton presidential race by indulging in the fun of a lot of craziness because there are no consequences. No, no, it's it's, no, it's right. It's just literally Donald Trump for president is like going, can you imagine if Kim Kardashian was president of the United States? (laughs) Think of how cool the White House would be decorated and they'd have great parties and Kanye, Kanye. Wow. You know, and, and, you know, it's not going to happen. Right. When even if Kanye thinks he's the next Trump, it's not going to happen. Um, but it's also not going to be Bush. It's going to be Marco Rubio and John Kasich one way or another. One's on top, one's on the bottom, one's on the bottom, one's on the top. That's the team. You've heard it here first. Do you disagree? Can you disagree? I'll with take that wager, actually. You'll ta- you're going to take yeah. Jeb Bush. I will bet you on that. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Rosa? I, I'm not a betting person, David. You know that. I don't know that. Very In fact, virtuous. I have. I know that you've been to Gamblers Anonymous ever since you were about 11 years old. <laughs> I, I am studiously <laughs> avoiding uh, following the Republican primaries. I am. I am so careful. I, I, you know, when I see Turn an article the TV, in the newspaper, when your children are I looking, cover it. Yeah. So, so I can't comment on this because I don't want to know. <laughs> you, you don't want to know well, what's going and to be honest, on. I, I, think that, I think that is I really feel that way about all primaries. I have to admit, a, a sensible position and an ethical position, right? Like I don't. When know. you guys make up your mind, just let me know. Yeah, it's really true. It's if you are listening to this at home. If you were listening to this in your car going to work, and you were like, "Oh my God, the primaries! It's so exciting! I'm so wrapped up in it." You're not taking it serious. You're not taking it seriously in the way a professional would take it seriously. If you live in a state where there's a primary, you have to vote. You have to think about it. But the rest of it is nonsense. Iowa is particular nonsense. Iowa elects insanity, okay? Rick Santorum won in Iowa. Pat Robertson won in Iowa. These people could win nowhere else, okay? You know, you win in Iowa for believing in a certain form of evangelical Christianity. It's, it's, it's a very weird place. New Hampshire, incredibly idiosyncratic. So what are these places? They're kind of high publicity filters that get rid of a couple of bottom tier candidates before you start going to the real races that take place in larger states in the South. And, yeah. and, and, and all this stuff beforehand is like, I don't know, it's uh, I, uh, all the analogies I think of are inappropriate for a podcast. <laughs> but, 
and inappropriate for a podcast in which you debated the suitability of the Canadian prime minister. No, we didn't. We debated the use of the word fuckable. And we came to the conclusion that the He's one thing. He's having a good time. Came, we, came, we came to the conclusion that you can't say fuckable in a podcast. For, for our listeners who are disturbed by this, I just want to who say believe that David, this podcast David is, is tobogganing from downhill. Rhett syndrome and he can't help it. Uh, and we're just going to pretend to hear that. All right. Well, then they'll just pull the plug. Let's just pull the plug on this episode of the podcast. We're done with this one. We'll be back with another one soon. And if you can stand the foul language and the ill-tempered guests, you know, come back. Republicans in a blender. Put them in a blender. No, no, that's positive. That may be the best proposal we've come up with here. You can stand on any of that. Come back sometime again in the future. Bye. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>